um, different uh, experiences and circumstances may be vastly different from one another, but we've all, every one of us, been through some junk in life. Some of us have been betrayed, abandoned. Some of us have suffered at the hands of overly critical parents or overly hovering parents. We've had dreams shattered, finances wrecked, sickness has ravaged our loved ones or maybe ravaged us. And many of us are mature enough to understand that um, some of those things are to be expected when you live in a, a broken world surrounded by broken people. But what happens when God seems to be the source of our pain? We pray and there's no answer. We do what God seems to be leading us to do when our ministry flops or we get fired or we lose a job or let go um, in a place where we thought God had led us to. Or we try for years to get pregnant and finally do and then have a miscarriage. Where was God in those moments? And these are questions that, if we're honest, uh, at some point in our life, maybe we've all wrestled with, maybe tucked down deep beneath the surface, kind of unsure if it's safe to voice those kinds of things in the various Christian communities we may have been a part of. Last week we discussed and looked at a scripture centered around this idea of the God we think we know. And in a moment of spiritual disorientation, we, we took a look at the life of Paul, a guy who thought he was doing God's work as he was on his way to round up some Christians and throw them in jail. And Jesus encountered him on the road and, and asked him, hey, why are you persecuting me? And we looked at Paul's response when, when everything had kind of been turned upside down and he just asked God, who are you, Lord? The book of Isaiah reminded us last week as well, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Who has known the mind of the Lord? So today we're going to go back to the very beginning, and we're going to take a look at the first relationship between God and his creation. So as I mentioned last week, um, the inspiration for this series came from a book that I read, also entitled God is Stranger by a guy named Krish Kandaya. And in there, uh, Kandaya talks about the moment that he first gave his life to Jesus. He was a, a young boy in England, and there was this Salvation Army church um, in his neighborhood. And so he remembers the morning that he went forward and went down to the altar and kneeled to pray to receive Christ. And he said there was this elderly Salvation Army lady worker in her black robe kneeled down with him at the altar and whispered into his ear, now you have a friend in Jesus who will never leave you, that you can always count on. And maybe we were told a similar version of that sentiment at some point in our life. I think our music in the church generally confirms that idea that uh, God is this friend, right? And we sing songs, probably many of us growing up, I have a friend in God. He calls me friend, right? How many people rock that tune back in the day, right? All right. So over the course of many years of following Christ... Kandaya, this author, he, he's wrestled with this notion of what it means to be in a friendship with God. And he explained his inner turmoil like this. He says, why do I often feel so distant from God? 
Why does God often fail to turn up when I ask him to and then turn up when I don't need him, often only to complicate things further? Which then leads us back to the question that we kind of threw out last week, which was, you know, how do we explain or share our faith with someone when we are not even sure who, who God is ourselves? And we're still trying to wrestle and figure that out. Or maybe most troubling, how do we explain to a friend what God's up to when they're going through some kind of trial or suffering that is sure to come in this world? And through multiple hard conversations with fellow believers um, centered around various real-life atrocities like um, ISIS, uh, families that have been impacted by that or by Boko Haram in Africa or mass shootings or famine or disease or various refugee crisis. Kandaya had come across in these conversations. He was brought back to this question. He said, as I listen to their accusations, I too wonder again why the God who's supposed to be our friend often feels quite the opposite, an enemy or at least a stranger. Who is this God? who has the power of creation yet seems to be either powerless or uncaring when disaster strikes? Who is this God who lets human beings wreak such destruction against each other? Who is this God whose friendship seems so uncertain? It's one thing for us to have a friendship with another human, right? Somebody who is like us in nature. But to have a friendship with God who is wholly different than us, that's a different thing. He's the creator, and we are his creation, and we answer to him. So is it possible that God can be both a stranger and a friend? Well, I think that's probably a more plausible reality as we journey through Scripture. So I want you guys to open your Bibles to kind of the beginning. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be in Genesis a bit today, so um, please follow along if you can, starting in verse 4. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And the Lord God formed a, a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So everything seems to be going well so far. God creates Adam and he puts him in this place that's just lush with plenty of food to eat. Most guys would take that, right? Let's skip down to verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man... You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So from this encounter, we start to see evidence of this interaction and this intimacy 
in this relationship between God and Adam, God is walking in the garden with him. He's, he's face to face with Adam in this conversation. And then God the Father inserts a rule into the equation. Parents are always doing that, aren't they? Making boundaries. <laughs> and God basically says this. He says, hey, listen, <clears throat> this garden is like Baskin Robbins, all right? And there are 30 amazing flavors of ice cream in this garden that you can eat all that you want. But there's this one flavor that you can't eat or else you'll die. And that's still a pretty good deal, isn't it? I mean, 30 out of 31, all you can eat, unbelievable flavors. But any of us who have kids know what's going on in Adam's mind at that point, right? What, what do our kids want more than anything? It's the one thing we told them they can't have, right? They want the graham cracker. And we say, well, you can have any of these other snacks, right? But just not the graham cracker. It's too late. It's not good for you. You know, whatever excuse you might come up with, right? And all the kid can think about is, I want a graham cracker. You know, like we're the worst people ever, right? That conversation has never happened at my house, by the way. That's, I completely fabricated that. Let's take a look at verse 18. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, <clears throat> and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, I got to tell you, folks, this story is getting pretty amazing. I mean, man, woman, naked, right? What a deal. I mean, really. If you throw in a big screen TV and the end Sunday NFL ticket, I mean, let's just call it good, bro. Like, let's not overcomplicate this whole creation thing. Like, I, just, I can live with that, right? And at this point in the story, God certainly seems like a friend, I mean, it's a pretty good setup, right? He's, he's, he's talking in, in terms that are, that are pretty predictable, trustworthy. But unfortunately, there's a chapter 3, right? Let's take a look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized 
they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So let's hold up right there. (laughs) How could this story have gone differently? Like, what could God have done? This is easy stuff right here. Yes, Rob. Not allowed the serpent to have been there. Yeah, what else? Yes, Reagan. What's that? Cut down the tree? Yeah, or never even had the tree. Yeah, Steve. Yes, right? Warning, right? Don't do it. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things, right, that God could have done in that moment. And I don't know about you, but when I'm sharing the gospel with someone, a lot of times in kind of my presentation, so to speak, I I have to go back to Genesis chapter 3, especially if it's somebody that really hasn't grown up going to church and maybe hearing some of this stuff, And I have to kind of explain to them kind of where sin began and where the brokenness all kind of started. And and when you go there, um, you know, it's really important for us to be able to understand theologically how to explain what's happening here. Because people are going to have questions, right? I mean, there's some pretty confusing things here about God's intentions, and so in, in starting in verse 8, we begin to see the consequences of this disobedience. Okay, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put you here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and ate it. Perfect. (laughs) Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. Oh, then he goes into curses. Well, we'll talk about that later. Okay. So the humans know they've sinned, right? Because they take off and they go and hide in, in guilt and shame. And that's what we do when we've disappointed the ones who love us. Like, it just eats us up that we've let them down in some way. And Adam and Eve created this barrier between them and God. And now God has to deal with that and figure, help figure that out, that situation. So in verse 14 through 19, if you were going to go on um, and read that, God kind of explains the curses that will come down now. Um, upon humanity because of the presence of sin in the world. He talks about, you know, ladies, childbirth will be painful. He says, guys, working in the ground now, it's going to be filled with thorns and thistles. It's not going to be easy ground to work on anymore. Basically, what he's saying here is the guy's life is going to be hard. And here's the worst news of all. At the end of that, he says to them, you will return to the ground. You're going to die. And before that, death had never been mentioned before. This was new information. Now, let's take a deep breath. Because at first glance, that seems really harsh, doesn't it? I mean, first offense? Can't we just all, like, count to ten? You know, calm down a little bit. Maybe put Adam and Eve in timeout. Let them think about it. 
Maybe they'll come back and apologize and we can just kind of start over, pretend like it didn't happen. One mistake and all of mankind is punished forever? I mean, is that how we treat our children? That's a tough one to explain to folks. And if we're honest, sometimes it can be tough for us to reconcile ourselves. As we mentioned here today, why was there a snake in the first place? Why did he have to put that tree in the garden to begin with? God seems to be pulling this kind of Jekyll and Hyde act here for us one moment and then against us the next. But let's flip the script for a minute, okay? I'm going to be the defense attorney for God now, okay? On God's behalf, he had given them everything that they need, right? He provided food and water for them, all they could eat. He gave them a job to give them some purpose. He gave them friendship with him. He gave them intimacy with one another, eternal life, no disease, no death. That's a pretty good deal, And God, as the owner of all things, could certainly make a rule and say, hey, guys, just not this one tree, okay? So at its core, their act of disobedience was really kind of an act of thievery, right? That was not their fruit to begin with. It was God's. It was an act of betrayal, a spirit of kind of ingratitude, right? Dissatisfaction towards God. It was self-centered. It was honestly an act of rebellion. And here's the harsh reality of the matter is that if we look closer, we're a lot like Adam and Eve, aren't we? We have all been given everything that we need. Peter put it like this in 2 Peter 1, 3. He wrote, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through no merit of our own, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us to bring us to God. Jesus reconciled our broken relationship with the Father. And when we receive that news, Scripture tells us that we're completely forgiven healed, that we are made a new creation, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, God writes our name in his book of life forever, and we didn't deserve any of it. That's a great deal, a lot like the deal that Adam and Eve were getting in the garden. But just like our original parents, we want more than that, don't we? We want more. We want some material things. We want some experiences. We might want a spouse or a baby, a fulfilling and flexible job. We want good health. We want good things to happen to us and the people that we care about. We want to be loved and admired by everyone, right? All people want those things. But there's this part of us that even thinks that we deserve it. And maybe most damning, we feel like we need those things 
in order to be happy and content. Like what Christ did for us on the cross was nice, but just a little bit incomplete. It's what we've called around here the Jesus and syndrome, right? Yeah, I want Jesus, but also this, this, and this. We want more. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you can, to Romans chapter 5. It's page 1028. Verse 12 of Romans 5 says this. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Now, what does Paul mean when he says all sinned? I mean, I wasn't there in the garden. So how did I sin? What does he mean? Justin, yeah. 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 We share in the sin because we all are like Adam and Eve. <laughs> if we were there, we'd have done the exact same thing because we all want more than what God has offered us. So we're complicit in the crime. <laughs> we would have trusted our wisdom over His. When God turned up in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. Uh, knew they disobeyed. They ran for the hills from God. The garden didn't feel like home anymore. It didn't feel safe for them. And that whole scene, that whole scene seems harsh. But honestly, God could have killed them, and he didn't. See, it only seems harsh if we feel like we deserve something to begin with. We, we didn't deserve to be created, right? So we're just lucky we're here, honestly, right? Only because of God do we even exist. And the curse narrative isn't so much a cruel and vindictive punishment. If you guys go back and read through verses 14 through 19 in Genesis 3, like I did, I found out that there was only one exclamation point. Right? Our, our indicator of maybe the kind of voice that God was using at the time, the one exclamation point is geared towards the snake and what his punishment's going to be. Everything else is written with periods. And I'd interpret that to be more of just kind of like a matter of fact statement. Hey, like, here's what you guys did, and then here's the consequences of your disobedience. This is how it has to be. I want you to think of it like this, Okay. When you have, you know, young children, especially as they get into the teenage years, you talk with them about, hopefully, um, about being trustworthy friends, about what it means to be a good friend. And you tell your child, hey, if your friend tells you a secret, you need to keep that to yourself, right? Don't go blabbing that around. So imagine your kid comes home one day from sixth grade, seventh grade, you know, kind of a volatile time emotionally, and they say, and they're, you, they're upset, and you can kind of know something's wrong. And you ask them, hey, what happened at school today? And 
and your kid goes, oh, you know, Johnny told me a secret, and, and I told some other kids at lunch, and now Johnny's really mad at me, okay? As a parent, you, you kind of have to, like, help explain what's going on here, <laughs> right? And, and say to them, yeah, I'm sure Johnny is kind of upset, because he probably thought that you would keep that secret, and the reality is, buddy, is I don't, I don't know how long Johnny's going to be mad at you or if he'll ever get over it. I don't know if you guys can be friends again. We hope so. We hope that he may forgive you if you apologize. But I can't guarantee that. And also what might happen is that maybe some of your other group of friends that heard how you kind of spilled Johnny's secret, they might wonder if you would do that to them too. And so things might be kind of rough for your whole friendship group here for a while. Um, Right? And so if we were an honest parent, we'd have to tell them kind of the consequences of those things. And how does that feel? <laughs> when you're the person who sinned and your consequences, the clarity of like what you've done and what the consequences are kind of starts to set in, what does that feel like emotionally? Just kind of spout out some feelings here to me, all you feelers out there. feels like a weight. Yeah, like somebody's just punch you in the gut, right? Yeah. Do you have your hand up, Ash? Did you have something? Yeah. I would say guilt. Guilt. Okay. Yeah. What else? Separation. Separation? And from what? Yeah, you know, things become awkward, right, Um, between the person that you offended (laughs) and you. Um, That person, honestly, might be kind of like forgiving and kind of cool, but you're so racked with guilt and shame that you put up this barrier between them that you're like, hey, man, like, what's going on? Like, you know, if they stop calling or stop texting, you're like, hey, it's all right. You know, but you're like, oh, man, I've really disappointed you. Or maybe they really do (laughs) treat you like crap for a while because they are hurt, right? And there's this awkwardness. So yeah, isolation is good. What else? Any other thoughts? Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, your mind starts turning, right? How do I fix this, right? And then you you turn to control, (laughs) manipulation maybe to be like, oh man, I got to make this thing right and I got to do whatever, okay? Yeah, all kinds of stuff starts swirling around in you. So we know what it's like for Adam and Eve in this moment, right? They're off there hiding. They're thinking, man, we blew it. God was pretty clear about what the rules were and we didn't, didn't follow them. And as a good parent in that situation I was talking about with your kid, A good parent would also say this to their child. Hey, you know, I know you made a mistake here, right? And and, and we're going to do our part to to do the best to apologize and make things right. But listen, no matter how this turns out, I want you to know that I'm I'm here with you. And I'm going to be with you and help you get through it. I mean, that's what a good parent would say to their child. And we see evidence of God's engagement with his broken children from the get-go. Back in Genesis 3, verse 9, when Adam and Eve are hiding, what is God doing? He's looking for them, right? Not to get them, 
But he says, hey, where are you? Where are you? I still want to be with you. And the paradox of God is that he's full of both grace and truth. Right? He reads the sentence of the punishment of the crime, but then he also pays the penalty for us. We hide from God because of our guilt and shame. We make him a stranger while the whole time he's pursuing us and coming after us. And here's the most beautiful act of all. Further down in the story, Genesis 3.21 says this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He covers us. The first killing in the Bible is God killing an animal to cover the shame and the guilt of Adam and Eve. And this is all foreshadowing of Christ's death to cover our shame and to clothe us in his righteousness. And here's the tension that we live in. God is both above us and beyond us and yet in us and among us. He is away from us and alongside us. And our relationship with God will always be this tension between knowing his presence and feeling his distance. And here's the truth, guys, is that we might not understand all of what God was doing in Genesis chapter 3. Places where he feels a little bit more like a stranger than a friend at times. But we do know that there are 65 more books in the Bible to come. (laughs) That our sin and disobedience was not the end of the story with God. He, He wasn't surprised by Adam and Eve eating the fruit. He knew that's exactly what they were going to do. And he'd already made a plan. Jesus was already there. Already ready to pay the price for us, to bring us back. And so that's what we find our hope in. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you today just trying to kind of look into your heart from the very beginning. And God, so many people, as I've walked through Scripture with them, they, they take a look at that opening scene and they're like, yeah, man, why is God so unfair? And why does he do this and punish these people when they make the first mistake? And it's like, Y'all are assuming that, that, <laughs> that they were owed something to begin with. And we do. Sometimes we walk around in this world like this world owes us something or God owes us something. God, we're, we're, we're lucky and blessed to be here. We have a God who's given us more than we deserve. So if our thinking and our mindset has been uh, warped in some way, we've been framing God and our circumstances in life Uh, incorrectly. God, I pray that you would reframe that in a way that helps us to appreciate and be grateful for the generous and merciful God that you are. That you put up with a lot of junk from us when you don't have to. That you gave your life to save us when you didn't have to. And so God, I pray that we would just, um, just repent of how much we are like our original parents how much more we want than what you've already done, how our happiness and contentment so many times depends on whether we get out of life what we think we deserve or need 
that isn't you. God, I pray what you did for us, the love you showed for us, the humility you showed, the sacrifice that you showed would be enough for us to fill us with joy that would go beyond our circumstances here in this world. God, I just thank you for this time to be in your word today and for its truth and what it has for us. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we